Romans chapter 5, this evening we'll consider verses 15 through 19. Romans chapter 5, the verses 15 through 19. Paul in Romans asserts that all mankind is naturally under the guilt and power of sin, and therefore the reign of death and the inescapable wrath of God. All mankind. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, he traces this back to the sin of one man whom he described as our common ancestor. God made the first man representative for all of his posterity, just as he was to make Jesus Christ the representative for all, God, for all who would place their faith in him. In each case, the representative was to involve those whom he represented in the fruits of his personal action. Adam represented us in the garden, just as Jesus Christ represented us before the Father on the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 again, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men, whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his righteous act of obedience. The two acts, while momentous in their significance, are not equal in power, a key aspect to this very theological passage. Christ's act is able to completely overcome the effects of Adam's act. Anyone who receives the gift that God offers in Christ finds security and joy in knowing that the reign of death has been completely and finally overcome by the reign of grace, righteousness, and eternal life. So the great theme of this section is Christ's act of obedience is powerful enough to overcome Adam's act of disobedience. Now, I gave you much of what I just said in the handout that you have before you right now. If you understand that much, if you understand this, the, the idea of representation, that Adam represented us in the garden, Christ represented us on the cross, and we have to pick an association between one of those two. Now, we all start off associated with Adam. And we have a choice of whether we want to remain associated with Adam or whether we want to become associated with Jesus Christ. That choice, that transfer is made by faith alone in Christ alone. If you understand that, if you understand that Christ's act, while momentous like Satan's act, was more powerful than Satan's act, and the effects of Christ's act are able to overcome the effects of Satan's act. If you understand that, I'm going to be so bold as to say, you've got a good grasp of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to tell you up front. It's interesting that in our, in our study of Colossians, we're studying one of the most theological passages in the New Testament with regard to Christology. And here we're studying one of the most theological passages in the New Testament with regard to soteriology, back-to-back -back on Wednesday and on Sunday. But you can handle it. But if you, if you have a grasp of what's on that form in front of you, and the idea of representative heads, one disobeyed death, one obeyed life. If you've got that, then you have a good framework for understanding Romans chapter 5. I, I admit it's a bit complicated as we read through it, in whatever language you want to read through it. 
but it's understandable, and I hope that that helps. If we get through this lesson, and we've only got one more after this on this very important passage, and you don't have that part, if it doesn't make sense, what we've talked about just in the first opening five or six minutes, please, please come and talk to me. Or afterwards, shoot me an email, pick up the phone, and, and give me a ring, and we'll talk about it, because I need you to understand that. You need to understand that if you're going to see the beauty of this passage. Also, please, if you ever do call me, you don't, don't feel obligated to start the, the conversation with, listen, I hate to bother you. Okay? <laughs> and I know most of you do, and I appreciate that on one level. I really do. You know, but and almost everybody that calls says that. You're not bothering me. Okay? That's, that's what I do. I'm a shepherd. I'm here to help you. Now, if you have a question at 3, 3.30 in the morning, and, and it could wait until 7.30 or 8 in the next morning, then I, you know, that's appreciated. But otherwise, call me. That's what I'm here for. I, I don't want to just lecture. I want to teach. And I don't want to just teach. I want you to learn. And then I don't want you to just learn. I want you to learn it so that you can apply it and have it transform you by the work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. So if we have a problem in the beginning in the understanding of a passage, you're going to have a very difficult time properly applying something that you don't really understand. So I admit this is a very difficult theological passage, but if you understand the framework that we've presented so far tonight and over the last few weeks, you really are coming very, very close to getting it. Now, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, shows why those who have been justified and reconciled can be certain that they will be saved from wrath and share in the glory of God. It is because Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. And once again, the way you are associated with Christ is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, in verses 15 and 16. Read along with me if you would. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and by the and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, listen, be honest. If you didn't have a framework, that's a bit of a complicated idea, isn't it? But if you'll... If you will keep the framework in mind that we've introduced over the last two weeks and tonight as well, the, the idea of representative headship, one disobeyed death, one obeyed, and then life, then this passage is not quite so difficult, I don't think. So in verses 15 and 16 specifically, these verses... Uh, show that the parallel of Adam and Christ is mainly one of contrast in the sense that Christ's influence for good far outweighs Adam's effectiveness for evil. The free gift is not like the trespass. That is, 
it's far more effective than the trespass. That's why we said there are parallels between Adam and Christ. But they're parallels, if I may, of contrast, not of similarity. There's a, there's a similarity in their representation, but that's about where it ends. Then the, the parallel remains, but it's now a contrasting parallel, if you'll allow me that, that uh, term. The difference is Christ's act is more powerful than Satan's, I'm sorry, than Adam's act. Christ's act is more powerful than Adam's act. By way of introduction to the further interpretation of this, a few matters need to be kept in mind. You might have noticed, even in the reading that we've done so far tonight, and particularly if you've read this yourself, the terms many and all keep coming up. And if you've read it carefully, sometimes you may say, well, wait a minute, a minute ago he said this had, this had ramifications for all, and then now he turns around and says it has ramifications for many. So I'd like to talk for just a minute about, speak for just a minute about what's going on with these two terms, many and all. Now, the apostle uses the word many in a twofold sense. Its first use, the many died, in that use, it, Im- it indicates all of Adam's physical descendants. At the close of the same verse, when it says it will overflow to many, it indicates all who belong to Christ. Now, this terminology of many is reminiscent of the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 53, 11 comes to mind, but also Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, and Mark 10, 45 in the New Testament. Verse 12 has shown that Adam was responsible for bringing into the world two evils. Remember what they were? Sin, and what was the result of sin? Death. Okay. The apostle deals with both of these in turn, with Adam's sin or his trespass in verses 15 and 16, and then with death in verse 17. He conceives of them as being intimately related, and therefore at times mentions both of them in the same breath. With sin comes death. If it wasn't for sin, there wouldn't be death. It's understandable that Paul can say, by that reason of Adam's trespass, that the many died. The many are those designated in 5.12 as all mankind. And I'm, there, I'm going to give you a, a final reason for this in a minute, but follow this part first, please. Paul has already told us that everyone is involved in this sin of Adam. So don't get thrown off when he then uses the word many to follow that up. He's using some Old Testament imagery and terminology here. But don't get confused by that. But in connection with the work of of God in Christ, for his children, this this bad and evil that Adam brought in has been more than canceled out. For those who trust Christ, God's grace and his gift of salvation changed death into its very opposite. What do we mean? For the believer in Jesus Christ, for those who are identified with the second representative head, death, which I just mentioned a minute ago as an evil, now becomes a positive. That which we do everything to avoid... And I'm not saying that we should hasten that process at all. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, death is profit. It's positive. 
It's a gain. Now, do you see how Paul might make the case that Jesus Jesus Christ's act was more powerful than the act of Adam? Adam brought something bad into the world, but Jesus Christ's act, if you're associated with him and associated with that act, actually turned something that is very negative into something that is, is overwhelmingly positive. Now, if I was just to say, is death negative, I don't think you have enough information just by that question to answer it yes or no. Because you would have to say, for whom? Is death negative? For the one who has never trusted Jesus Christ and received eternal life? The answer is yes. Make no mistake. It's bad. It's a a terrible thing. It's something they should avoid at all cost. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, please do everything you can to stay alive. Don't sign anything that says they can pull the plug on you. Because you, you need every opportunity. However... If you have trusted Jesus Christ and are therefore identified with the second representative head, you need not fear death anymore. Death is actually, while it is painful, sometimes it's painful physically, it is going to be painful for the people that go, go along that path with you, but it's ultimately positive. Uh, please don't mis- misapply this. Please don't go into the hospital room of, of someone who has a loved one passing away and be so cold and callous as to minimize the suffering that they're going through. Because when a loved one is going through the dying process, whether they're going to heaven or whether they're not going to heaven, that process is still painful. It's an abnormality for the believer to pretend that it's not. And I bring before you as exhibit A, and the only one that I think I should have to bring before you, Jesus Christ himself. There's a lot of discussion about why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that he was going to resurrect him. The best I can figure, the best I can calculate as to why he did that, was not so much for Lazarus. Some people say he was weeping for Lazarus because he knew he was going to have to bring him back to life and he'd have to live some more on this earth. I don't think that was really it. I mean, serious theologians consider that. I believe, especially in context... He wept because he saw how painful it was for Mary and Martha. They were his good friends. Remember when when he comes up, one of the sisters says, Listen, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. She was beside herself. And Jesus had compassion. He felt for her. And I believe that's why he wept. So if you're ever in a hospital room or or visiting someone, the, the truth is, and we'll learn about it later in Romans, You know what your responsibility is as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves that person? Whether you even know the the one who's departing or not? To laugh with those who laugh, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep. Now listen, if you can't do that, don't go up there. If you can't sympathize and have compassion, just stay away. That would be my advice. Otherwise, you're going to say something that's going to throw everybody into a, a kilter, and that's not, it's, it's not what you want at that time. So if we're represented, with Jesus, represented by Jesus Christ, and if that representation has come, of course, by grace through faith, then death is actually the opposite of what it used to be. Death becomes a gain. Remember what Paul said 
Philippians 1.21. Had a lot of work to do. He wanted to get a lot accomplished. He didn't really know if God was going to take him home at that time when he was in prison in Rome uh, or if he was going to release him. Turns out he was released, but Paul said, listen, either way, I paraphrase, if they execute me or if they let me go, I win. Either way. And I hope that's the attitude that all of us have as well. Because right now we're sitting here, uh, most of us, there may, there may actually be a person or two that, that may be near the, the death process, and you know it, and you just haven't really publicized that very well. Maybe you don't know it. But for most of us, we're sitting here thinking that's a long way off. And it's real easy to apply this theology when it's a long way off. But I hope and pray that when it comes time for each and every one of us to go through that process, and short of the rapture of the church, we will. We will remember that we're no longer identified with Adam. We're no longer identified with death. We're identified with Jesus Christ. And he has turned defeat into victory. When I was uh, in my early 20s, I was uh, uh, helped work with my younger brother's high school football team. Uh, the Crosby football team, they had one of the best football teams in the state that year. Matter of fact, they went to Austin and played in semifinals or finals, something up there. And I never forget one game that they played against Cleveland, and Cleveland, Texas. And they were behind by 28 points in the fourth quarter, or as the fourth quarter was just getting started. Now, most people would just head it out and go on home. Because you lost, right? Any football game, you lost. It was the most exciting 12 minutes, at least on the clock, that I've ever seen. Not only did they catch them, they passed them and won the game by two touchdowns. Now, you do the math on that. It's difficult to, to physically do that. Nobody could even catch their breath. Because the point is, they were as defeated as someone could be defeated... And the victory turned out to be as resounding as a victory, because the other team might have been even been better, as they could have possibly expected when they went into the game. And that's what Jesus Christ did, but infinitely, to an infinitely greater degree. He took us from the jaws of defeat and lifted us up into the single greatest victory that we will ever have in our life. And that is, when we leave this one and go into the very presence of God. It's not something that we should fear. It's not something that we should hasten. The Bible never gives an excuse to do that. If you like chicken fried steaks and your doctor says, hey, listen, you need to lay off the chicken fried steaks, you don't need to come back and say, I'm going to keep eating them. I'm going to eat twice as many because I want to go to heaven sooner. That's not a proper application. Because you know, you know why? And I, to, be, to be real serious about it, you know why that's not proper? Because some might question that. The reason it's not proper is because your life doesn't belong to you. See? It belongs to God. He'll decide how long you live here and then when you need to get your transfer. It's not up to you to hasten it. It's up to you to do the best you can with the body that he gave you, to put good food in it, to breathe as good air as you can breathe, to drink as good a water as you can breathe, to have a balanced life to where you can get some exercise in and take care of the tent that he's given you. Okay. In Adam's case, again, a single sin was involved. This single sin resulted in condemnation. But the text says, Christ, by his work of redemption, made forgiveness not only for that one sin, 
but for all sins that flowed and followed from it. So on the cross, Jesus Christ didn't just pay the penalty for that one transgression of Adam, but he also paid the penalty for all that he suffered, for all the transgressions, all the sins, all the rebellious acts that we would ever do. So it's all covered. And that is nothing short of beautiful. I appreciate our Lord Forrest. His sacrifice sufficed for all sin, Adam's sin and ours as well. In fact, it was efficacious for the sins, all the sins committed by those who placed their trust in him. If you don't place your trust in Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross is of no benefit to you. Because you're still identified with Adam, and you will die identified with Adam if you never place your faith in Jesus Christ. Condemnation, though, for those who have, is replaced by justification. Now in verse 17, again, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now in verse 17, he, Paul is, speaks more specifically of the subject of death. This time, after repeating that death resulted from the trans, uh, transgression of one, Adam, he mentions the reign of death, the powerful and destructive influence it exercises over the affairs of human beings. In fact, the, the scriptures teach us that death that came through Adam in the, what we call theologically the fall affected even nature. It doesn't just affect us. All of nature groans under the weight of the curse. In harmony with his thoughts on the supremacy of grace, this is what we call the much more doctrine, Paul points out that in the case of believers, the reign of death is not merely replaced by the reign of life, but a reign so glorious that those who participated in, participate in this reign will be considered royalty. I mean, don't miss the significance of the word reign. These, those who are associated with Christ will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. This phrase stresses that all are royalty. All will reign. The text says in life, which I think refers primarily to our eternal life in eternity. But remember that that reign is through Jesus Christ. Now, some have asked me, and I know this is a question that some of you have discussed amongst yourself, is that's who will reign with Jesus Christ in the millennium, particularly the millennial kingdom? Who will reign forever with Jesus Christ? Is it all church-age believers, or is it church-age believers who were faithful in, what, in utilizing what God gave them in this life? Luke 19, Matthew chapter 25. Which is it? A casual glance at this passage would make us think that it's everybody. Because everybody will reign, according to this, that's associated with the second Adam or the last Adam, Jesus Christ, rather than the first one. But further New Testament revelation, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where the, the churches are evaluated and some believers are called overcomers. Now, that's, there's some that think everyone 
in, in Revelation 2 and 3 was an overcomer. I'm not one. I think perhaps one church it includes everybody. But but there are, in, in the parables in Luke chapter 19, Matthew chapter 25, there is definitely an evaluation that occurs after we die as believers in Jesus Christ where our life is evaluated basically with regard to our faithfulness. How faithful were we to Jesus Christ while we were here on earth? And so because of that, I believe that that indicates that while we are all royalty and eligible to reign with Christ, some will fail in time to glorify God, and their reign is, I believe, minimal in importance as compared with those who are faithful in their Christian walk. So all will reign in the sense of being identified with Christ, Christ being the ruler during the millennium. But there will be some that were exceedingly faithful, and they will have a special role in the administration of God's affairs during that particular period. I don't for a minute believe that every single person who ever trusted Jesus Christ will reign in terms, in the sense of actually exercising authority in the millennium. I think if that was the case, if you do the math, you're going to have about 150 believers for every poor millennial saint that there is, and that's not the picture that I get of the millennium. Jesus Christ reigns. The 12 apostles are going to be definitely ruling with him. And I think certain church-age believers who have been exceedingly faithful will have a special role of administration during the millennium. But it's those who were faithful. Now, in verses 18 and 19, read along with me one last time, please. So then, as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even though even so through one I'm sorry, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Now, is that starting to make sense to you, now that we have the, the representative idea? Now, before we get too far into this passage, and we're, we don't have a lot of time anyway, but remember when we were in verse 12, we said that, we, we, we noticed that at the end of verse 12, there's a double dash in most English translations. And remember, the text said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, and then there's a dash there, it's because Paul doesn't ever finish the sentence. He just leaves us dangling. And I said, at that point, we'll come back to that later and see where Paul might have finished the sentence. Well, this is how many New Testament scholars believe that Paul does it. In 5.12, He leaves us with a dangling thought. In verses 13 through 17, he makes, for lack of a better term, and I'm sure there is one, a parenthetical statement, a statement that expands upon the principle that he has introduced in in chapter 5, verse 12. And then in verse 18, many grammarians feel like what Paul has done is he's finished the sentence that he began in verse 12. So in verse 18, as the words, so then, indicate, not only is Paul returning to the thought that was expressed first in verse 12, he's summing up the argument of the entirety between verses 12 and 17. This present passage places over against each other 
one trespass, namely that of Adam, and here I'd ask you to, to refer back again to the handout, but one trespass, namely that of Adam, a trespass that is here called the disobedience of one, and one act or deed of righteousness called the obedience of one, that one being Jesus Christ. We can understand that one trespass resulted for all men in condemnation, but what does the apostle mean when he states that also for all men one act of righteousness resulted in life? Remember we we introduced that a minute ago, this the idea of the many and the all that he he seems to keep going back and forth. If in the first case all men means absolutely everybody, and it does. Doesn't logic demand that in the second instance of the word it has the same meaning? You would think that, wouldn't you? Is is Paul then arguing for universalism, meaning that everyone is saved? Not at all. Paul has made it very clear in the previous passage that salvation is for believers and believers alone. He introduced this all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and in chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. Remember that Paul has already made it clear in Romans that justification is by faith. He's not contradicting himself here. That's why it's so important when we're going to study a passage like this that you don't open to Romans and start here. When you read the, the letter to the Romans, you should start in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. But sometimes Christians get so silly. We are some of this, we're some amongst those silly folks that I know because we wouldn't do that to anything else. Even the sports page. You wouldn't begin to read a call, an, an article that's by a sports writer in the middle of the article because you'd probably come along something and say, what in the world is he talking about there? You'd go back and read it from the beginning down. You have to set it up. Paul has already made it clear that salvation is by grace through faith, that justification is by grace through faith. So no, he's not just chunking everything he just said. We might get that idea if we started in Romans 5. That's why I would again make a, uh, a plea for you to consider a Bible study methods course. Because this will help you not to make the mistakes that sometimes people make. No, Paul's not contradicting himself. He's already made it clear what he means early on. He's emphasized this in the very context. Those who receive the overflowing fullness of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. That was just one verse before. Also in a passage which is similar to chapter 5, verse 18, Paul explains what he means by all are all men who are going to be saved and participate in the glorious resurrection. That passage comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 15 rather, verses 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Here it is clearly stated that the all who will be made alive are those who are Christ's. Again, it hasn't changed. The framework hasn't changed. You're either identified with Adam or you're identified with Christ. Everybody that's identified with Adam is going to have the same fate. Everybody that's identified with Christ is going to have the same fate. But again, we might ask, well, why did Paul, is he trying to be cryptic here? 
Is this some sort of first century Da Vinci code that we've got to, we've got to decode to find out what's going on? Actually, it's not that complicated. Remember, Paul in this letter has previously had to admonish the Jew for thinking that he or she had a right standing before God strictly on the basis of their Jewishness, their racial identification with Abraham. And I have to say, sadly, that many of our Jewish friends today have the same attitude. The reason that they are rightly related to God is because they are born of the seed of Abraham, but the physical seed, not the spiritual seed. So Paul drives the point home again that he has already driven home that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. God shows no partiality. All men are sinners before God. All are in need of salvation. For all, the way to be saved is the same. In a day and age where even in certain evangelical circles, there exists what I see as an unbiblical distinction between Jew and Gentile, I think that this, this distinction is maintained, and some even emphasize it. I think in light of that, it's necessary that what God's Word says about this, particularly also in the letter to the Galatians, I think it's necessary that we point this out. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. In Christ. So if you've been associated, if you're associated with Adam, that's one choice. But if you have chosen by grace through faith to be associated with Christ, and that, that identification is permanent, once you're in Christ, once you're identified with the second and last Adam, distinctions that humanity places on one another are no longer valid. There is no distinction within the body of Christ between Jew and Gentile. Now, are there still Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ? Racially, yes. But in God's eyes, the distinction no longer exists. Are there distinctions in the body of Christ between males and females? Of course there are. We would not be so absurd as to propose anything else. But in God's eyes, is a female believer more important than a male believer or vice versa no slave and free in the eyes of romans a slave didn't have the standing of a free man and if you're identified with adam that was still the case but when a runaway slave named Onesimus became saved paul sends him back to philemon in the city of colossi by the way and says accept him like you would a brother he's in christ now there's there's not a distinction now Humanly speaking, he may still work for you. But before God, and especially when they came into the church, there was no distinction. If you happen to have an employee, if you're an employer and you have an employee that, have, that goes to our church, I hope you're very sensitive about that. Because the, the leadership that you exhibit at work doesn't carry over into the local church. There's no distinction. So I think that's why Paul is having to admonish the Jews again because of this racial pride that they had. Once more, in this wonderful section, 5, 12 through 21, Paul teaches that all people stand in relationship to one of two men, 
whose actions determine the eternal destiny of all who belong to them. Either one belongs to Adam and is under the sentence of death because of his sin or disobedience, or one belongs to Christ and is assured of eternal life because of his act, his righteous act of obedience.